0: Welcome to the special bulletin review sponsored by Decision Lens. Here's today's moderator, Tom Temin.
1: For a military unit like Northern Command and its co-located North American Aerospace Defense Command, or NORAD, program planning and budget execution bring specific challenges. It's a matter of presenting risk-prioritized options rather than laying out acquisition roadmaps. I discuss this in detail with U.S. NORTHCOM and NORAD Commander, Air Force General Glenn David Van Herk. This is kind of a hybrid command that you have. There's several components that's face slightly different directions, you might say. What are some of the major challenges in the yearly budgeting and planning process that you've got to keep everything going and in sync?
0: Yeah, well The first thing I would say is when you say hybrid command, it's actually two separate commands, two separate uh, processes. When we deal with the NORTHCOM side, a separate command, separate authorities, and then the NORAD side, which I have to work through both the U.S. side and the Canadian side when it comes to funding and uh, capabilities. Specifically to your question about uh, challenges that we face with the uh, program objective memorandum or the POM uh, submission in the budget cycle, what what I would say is first, uh, from a combatant commander perspective, we we don't have any direct control over the the budget uh, and the process. We have input uh, into the process early on and that input uh, is the opportunity to provide uh, the services with our advocacy memos on what we're seeking from the services it's the opportunity to uh, influence the uh, department's uh, guidance for budgeting called the DPG uh, as well uh, that's their, uh, their their prioritization for the budget for what the services actually go acquire but as you likely know i don't have acquisition authority or capability i rely on the services uh, to do that for me to field the capabilities. Now the challenges that we faced. the first thing I would say uh, in the budget cycle is to ensure that the, com- the combatant commands and uh, com- you know, commanders of NORAD, uh, me, actually have a voice in the budget process when it comes to risk. Uh, when they talk about uh, cutting programs, uh, you know, such as fighters or cutting command and control capabilities, uh, we can talk about that from the service perspective, but there's also a more broad risk on capability to execute the missions, and I think that is something that we could work on. But I'll tell you, uh, the, the real challenge has been uh, the period between the, the uh, submission and the appropriation. Uh, ideally, we'd like to have an approved budget for execution on the 1st of October in the U.S. every year, and as you've seen, I think uh, 10 out of the last 11 years or so, we've had a continuing resolution. And that has been incredibly detrimental to our buying power, our uh, erosion of readiness and those cap- uh, those kinds of things. So I would tell you that predictable, sustained funding uh, is a significant uh, challenge, something that we have to work on.
1: And the POM itself kicks off a process which is variously described as three or five years, perhaps, until what is in the POM and attempts to be justified actually ends up in an appropriation. So the variable besides congressional inability to get the budgets passed on time what about the wild cards the unicorns that come into the world itself for example you know from the perspective of northern command in the last several years we've seen this uptick in say launches by north korea which must have your eyebrows you know raised and you're probably looking at it carefully it might also reflect the need for certain capabilities or programs that weren't envisioned in the palm, which is now a couple of years in the past. Long way of asking, what about the unanticipated in this whole process?
0: Well, I would say the example you gave, such as a, a North Korea, a new capability, still fits it within the palm and the planning cycle. You can adjust the planning cycle uh, within the next year's budget if you need to. The challenge is really uh, the timeline it takes to actually uh Get through the budgeting process then actually acquire and field capabilities and so that sometimes will take many many years I would say that example uh, probably is not a, a great example let me give you an, a, an example that challenges us in the year of execution sure and that would be something something along the lines of uh, the operation allies welcome which took a significant uh, funding that we had to adjust in the year of execution. And we have to adapt to those kinds of things, not specifically NORAD and NORTHCOM I'm talking about, but the department has to acquire uh, and uh, get funds in the year of execution. Sometimes we can go back to Congress. You see that ongoing now with the situation in Russia and Ukraine to get additional funds. But oftentimes we don't have to do that. We have to adjust within the year of execution and those dollars that we're operating in. So that will obviously have impacts uh, primarily on our operations and maintenance funds. There are different types of funds, Tom, uh, that, that, that don't cross in the appropriations that legally they can't cross. So it's not like we get a pot of money and you can use it for whatever you want. In the acquisition, the research and development dollars, those are specifically earmarked for specific types of programs. Uh, and In the year of execution, there's not significant impact to those because those dollars can't be used for operations and maintenance.
1: Is the color of money question a hindrance, something you live with, or something that you feel could probably stand a legislative fix at some point down the line?
0: Well, I believe that uh, Congress, you know, with their oversight role, certainly needs to consider uh, the color of money to ensure that uh, what they appropriate funds for, uh, those funds actually go to. But I do believe that we ought to look at the, the world that we live in and ensure that the policies and laws allow us to operate within that world that we live in today, uh, as you see uh, potential uh, threats uh, and actors who adaptively, uh, you know, rather quickly adjust, we have to make sure that we can also adjust and adapt uh, quickly and that those policies and laws are not hindering us at operating at the speed of relevance in the future.
1: And let's get back to the beginning here, the palm, because every program that you operate has to have this and I guess it's refreshed annually. What is your thinking process? What's the internal way you go about deciding for each of the program areas? What can we kind of just continue because it might be the operation and maintenance of buildings, for example, versus what you really need to put some new thought into because of changing conditions or what you see in the future?
0: So that's a, that's a great question. So I don't do infrastructure, buildings, again the services do that for me and so primarily here on uh, you know at, at Peterson Space Force Base I rely on General Raymond the chief of the uh, space operations uh, to do that so we advocate with them for infrastructure and those type of, types of things and capabilities I have an input to that but that is not my direct uh, responsibility
1: well what about the rest of the programs that you do have what's your priority so, process
0: so that's that's a, a great question so what I, what I would say is I wouldn't view that we start over uh, every single year with a new fresh perspective. The, the, the beauty of the POM is it's designed to update and it's a five year FIDEP and it's adjust when I say FIDEP, fiscal year uh, defense program. And then it, it adjusts every year. So I wouldn't say that we start over freshly from every, every year. It continues throughout the, the process and the budgeting process. So I think what you're really getting after is so how do I manage the prioritization? I would start with what we call the joint strategic planning system. It starts with the guidance that I'm giving, that I'm given from uh, the department and the uh, you know the Canadian side on NORAD uh, for what the missions we're tasked to do and the strategies that we're tasked to do. And when you take those and you dissect them and you have to apply capabilities to that, whether that be an operational level plan or a conceptual plan, uh, but you're actually looking at capabilities, what you'll find is when you take that guidance and you try to execute it, you'll find that you either have the resources to do it, or in some places you don't have the capabilities you need. And so that produces gaps, capability gaps. What those capability gaps then translate into is a priority list, an integrated priority list. And I have one for the United States and I have one for Canada that tells uh, the departments, these are the things I need to execute the guidance that you've given me and to execute the plans that we need to be able to uh, do to defend our nations or North America. If if it's threat warning, for example, it's, it's domain awareness. So if you want me to provide threat warning against the evolving threat of hypersonics, then I'm going to tell you I need the following capability gaps addressed. And that leads itself to an integrated priority list, which then goes through a validation for a requirements process. And so I just can't put things on a, a list and say this is what I want. Those are validated through what's called the Joint Requirements Oversight Council that make it into a valid a requirements process.
1: Right. So they're the ones that are looking at everybody's, kind of, all of the of the chicks' open mouths and knowing where they can, and they know how many worms they have. That's where the prioritization takes place that, that you sort of have to live with then?
0: Yes. so Not a great metaphor. but Well, so you say you have to live with. What I would say is that's a risk decision. Uh, my, my job is to produce options uh, and convey the risk of those options. So if I'm tasked to provide options to defend against cruise missiles, for example, what I, I don't ask for a specific platform, such as an F-35 or a CF-18. Or, I ask for capabilities to address that problem, and it starts out with domain awareness. And so over-the-horizon radar... May be an example but i'm not going to ask for give me this over the horizon radar what i'm going to say is i have a capability gap and here are some considerations to fill that gap and that would include this the command and control of it the domain awareness aspect of it all the way through to potential in-game kinetic defeat options all the way through to potential uh, non-kinetic actions as as well does that make sense
1: it does. We're speaking with Air Force General Glenn David Van Herk, Commander of U.S. Northern Command and the North American Aerospace Defense Command. We'll be back with more of the interview after this short break. I'm Tom Temmin. How can the United States be considered an innovation leader with a government planning process dictated by manual spreadsheets? This high tech country deserves a high tech government. Decision Lens software is here to transform and bring innovation back to the capital. Organizations using Decision Lens achieve operational efficiency. They gain the agility to pivot as priorities shift and the confidence to stand behind an expertly executed budget. Give your agency a competitive advantage. Learn more at decisionlens.com. Welcome back to our interview with Air Force General Glenn David Van Herc, commander of U.S. Northern Command and of the North American Aerospace Defense Command. We've been discussing the program objective memorandum and planning processes to support the mission options. And general, with respect to the options we were discussing before the break, and just the final follow-up on that that uh, string of thought here, and that is, what about the billets and personnel that you have? How do they? How does that planning get folded into this?
0: The process for billets and personnel to to meet the requirement goes through a manpower validation process as well, and so. When you come up with a mission that you're tasked to do, you you typically come up with, we think it it requires uh, this number of personnel, this type of facility, these types of capabilities. But then there's, again, a, a requirements validation process to validate those. Now, once you validate positions, that does not mean you get a body to fill the position. Funding has to actually be appropriated and applied against that position as well. So you can have validated positions. That does not mean you have somebody sitting in that uh, position. You know, the most expensive thing we have is exactly what we just talked about. It's it's the uh, the the personnel uh, that we apply against uh, requirements. And so you know, those are tough things to get validated, and they're looked at very crucially. We have laws within the United States that give us a top-line number on the total number of positions a service can have. And then in the joint world, where my uh, NORTHCOM hat is, the joint pool also has a total number of positions by service and even by rank, especially in the general officer and flag officer, that you can actually have. So you can't just validate those. The Congress tells us this is the number you can actually have.
1: And with respect to the whole process of coming up with these plans and giving the requirements that you need, and there's some relation to budgeting there, I suppose, at least in your mind, eventually things have to be paid for. What is your process for gathering the data, information, and justification that you'll need for what it is you send in for that risk analysis that the larger joint group does?
0: Yes. Yeah, so let me go back to the first part of that. So when you say uh, that I'm going to look at you know the budgeting process is I develop options and uh, actually I don't look at the budget process as I create options I'm given a task to achieve a policy in state given by uh, our civilian leaders whether that be in Canada or the US I'm not going to say I think this much money or this many people are available what I'm going to do is come up with a plan to execute the task I'm given and it's options within a variance of risk. So low risk, if you want the lowest risk possible, then this is the plan. This is how many people it would take to execute. On the other side, I may give them a high risk option that says um, we can get by with less uh, capability and less people to do that. Ultimately, uh, I'm not going to factor in the budget. I'll let the policymakers figure that uh, decision out. From my standpoint of the process, I'll go back to the Joint Strategic Planning System. It goes totally back to the tasks that I'm given and to assess the plans that we develop and then what capabilities, what number of personnel to execute those plans and the options across a varying spectrum of risk and a timeline to execute that. And I provide those inputs. Ultimately, that's not a military decision. I think that's our political leaders and our policy decision to make whether they're gonna fund that and ultimately what risk they're willing to accept My job is to give them the options and convey the risks of each of those options, and if they elect to not fund them, to convey the risk and ensure they understand what risk they've accepted.
1: And what about the information, data, kind of analysis that you need to do to be able to present those options? Where do you get that information? What kind of data do you have available
0: to you? Well, that's a good point. That, that I think we need better data analytics in many cases to analyze uh, some of the, uh, the options, the capabilities. Typically, uh, what we're doing is looking at the, the uh, specific options and the capabilities available today uh, to execute those options. And we know historically what a uh, F-22 cost is per flying hour. We know how many people... We have numbers that a person of this rank costs this much over time. So you can apply those kinds of models and analytics uh, to what we're talking about. I think this is a growth area, someplace that we can can, uh, get better in the future with the use of machines and capabilities, but the department right now typically does that through what I would say are analytic processes and knowing uh, what those cost models actually are.
1: Because you hear a lot about military planning relying on spreadsheets. And spreadsheets can get very large, and they don't necessarily synchronize, and it's hard to correlate the information from one source with the information in another source. And so you don't really know whether what you're proposing adds up to something that someone can evaluate accurately.
0: I agree with you. You know, if you're doing this all in spreadsheets, it's very timely, it's very... uh, manpower intensive. That's why having analytical tools that can adapt quickly as we come up with options and plans for risk, I think helps us in the future to, to be able to operate at the speed of relevance. Uh, you know, when you do this with uh, pencils and erasers and those kinds of things, it becomes challenging to really present options and, and present uh, risk and uh, make arguments one uh, for one uh, option over the other. Uh, ultimately, though, I'll go back, Tom, I, I'm not worried about cost. I'm pre- planning options and conveying risk. I'll let the uh, department, uh, based on those options and risk, assess the cost.
1: But with respect to even analyzing the risks and understanding, you need data and evidence for that also. And what are those? What are your sources?
0: Well, the source is the apportioned forces that uh, we're allowed to plan with when, when we look at that. So, you know, I can't create plans or forces and capabilities that don't exist. Uh, w- what I can plan with is those, of force, those forces that the secretary uh, and, and the, uh, the CDS and the minister tell us, these are forces that you're allowed to plan for either your NORAD or NORTHCOM missions. I can take those forces and then come up with realistic plans, but if the forces don't exist, or they're required for some other mission that's not a NORAD or NORTHCOM mission, and I can't plan against those and utilize those forces. So I don't have a an open-ended um, you know, access to every force in the Joint Force or across uh, Canada, just like I don't have an open-ended uh, budget. But in the end, uh, I'm not going to worry about the money, but I can't plan for forces that I don't have.
1: Sure. And uh, maybe just talk a little bit more about the interrelationship with Canada because that's a unique aspect to what it is you do there. And they have their own process, and I have no idea what it is or how it works. But nevertheless, you and Canada impinge on one another and cooperate with one another pretty closely. What are some of the dynamics there when it comes to planning?
0: Well, the first thing I would say is we we don't have an integrated framework for planning between U.S. and Canada for the NORAD mission. They're separate processes. My direct input into Canada is essentially the same as it is the United States. I come up with, uh, based on the guidance I've been given... Of options and, and, and plans and convey the risk. And that leads to capability gaps and seams where I'm unable to execute the plan, such as infrastructure or domain awareness. And that turns into an integrated priority list, just like I provide on the U.S. side. I provide that integrated priority list to the CDS, uh, to the minister for their consideration as they build uh, budgets in Canada to provide to the uh, the, the political uh, decision-makers in Canada. That's the process we're in right now. Um, I am not part of that internal Canadian process. My input really stops at the integrated priority list, and from there it's up to the D&D to come up with options uh, to provide to the decision-makers in Canada.
1: And in a given year, 12 months, how much of your time is spent in all of this what we could call PPBE and palm process. Does it take up a lot of your time?
0: Well, a lot of things take up a lot of my time. (laughs) Um, I I would say that uh, if you're looking at the things that consume the most of my time, I would say this is not uh, one of them on a day to day basis, but that will episodically uh, take my time to ensure that I put my stamp and my input Onto to the inputs that we're going to provide to my bosses, whether that be the Secretary of Defense or whether that be the Chief of the Defense Staff, uh, I will give it a significant amount of time. I would say that I get frequent touches. I wouldn't say it's daily, but it's certainly several times a week to where we look at uh, capability gaps, uh, we're assessing options and risk uh, that shape our uh, inputs and discussions on various topics, such as defense planning guidance or our integrated priority list, et cetera, uh, that, that occurs throughout the year as well.
1: Okay. I think we are good here. Anything else I missed that you want to talk about with respect to PPBE?
0: I think it's some area for growth and, and adaptability. I do believe that the use of machines and uh, more analytical data analysis in the future would be significantly helpful for us to adapt quickly uh, in the year of execution as well. And I do think going forward that we need to be a little bit more flexible to make sure that we don't tie ourselves up uh, because of our policy and laws that create national security challenges for us. So we need to look at those things in the
1: future. Air Force General Glenn David Van Herk, commander of U.S. Northern Command and of the North American Aerospace Defense Command, NORAD. To hear this interview again or share it with colleagues, please visit federalnewsnetwork.com and search Federal Insights. I'm Tom Tammen.
0: Thank you for listening to the Special Bulletin Review, sponsored by Decision Lens on Federal News Network.